The teaching for this evening is based on the book of Ruth, select verses. This is God's word. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, and Ruth clung to her. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the, Lord, for the Almighty has dealt betterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nurser of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Good evening. For 2,000 years, Christians have believed in something called the Incarnation, which teaches that the Son of God was both a complete human being, but also completely divine and perfect. The Incarnation means that the infinite and the eternal and the unchangeable and this mysterious God came and took on blood and bones and sweats and hair and became one of us. And it's this time of year that we tend to emphasize that doctrine of the Incarnation. If you can think about the Incarnation like a great storehouse or a big warehouse full of the riches and the privileges and the blessings of salvation. That's what the incarnation is all about. 
Now, what might this genealogy of Christ, and in particular Ruth, teach us about the grace, this great storehouse, this, this great warehouse that's full of the privileges of salvation? What might Ruth and this genealogy teach us about that? In Matthew, in particular, which we read during the lighting of the Advent candle, the genealogy in Matthew begins, it's toward the beginning of your bulletin, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it begins with Abraham, and then goes to David and the deportation. And in Matthew's gospel, he's really trying to solidify at the very beginning the credibility of who Jesus is. You can imagine maybe going to see a counselor, and the counselor begins to give you their pedigree, their qualifications. Here's why you should listen to me. And they tell you that they're the son of Max Licato, maybe, or, I don't know, the son of Billy Graham, um, the son of, uh, or daughter of Sigmund Freud, if that does it for you. But, you know, here's why you should, you should listen to me. And so here at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, Matthew, one of the apostles, is saying, here's why you should listen to Jesus. He's the son of David, son of Abraham, a true Jew, a true Israelite. Um, which would have gotten a lot of attention from very religious people. Yeah, son of David, I want to listen to this guy. A son of Abraham. But the genealogy is also a little, um, a little strange and, and would have been a challenge to the religious people of the day, and that's the inclusion of these four women, the one that we're looking at tonight, Ruth. It would have challenged the religious people because Ruth isn't necessarily very powerful, she wasn't an insider. She didn't fit their conception necessarily of what a, a great person would be. Um, someone who Jesus, the Messiah, would have been related to. The story of Ruth would have been very familiar to the Jews because they probably read it during the Feast of Weeks. These great holidays that the Jews had to celebrate these different provisions that God had given them. They would have read the book of Ruth during this feast as a way to celebrate this great harvest that had come in. But I really want to look at four things tonight. and uh, They are success, foreigners, bitterness, and power. Success, foreigners, bitterness, and power. But before I go any further, um, would you pray with me quickly? Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would speak to us tonight. I pray that you in particular would help me to remember the words of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would um, use a crooked stick to, um, to speak straight truths into our hearts. Um, would you speak to us now wherever we are and wherever we um, have been this week? Speak to us now in the power of your spirit. Amen. Um, As you saw in your bulletin, maybe, I'm the REF campus minister at uh, UAB here in Birmingham, and I've been there a little over two years, and since I've been there, there's been ebbs and flows in the ministry and ebbs and flows just to my own spiritual development, and this fall was just a particularly joyful and exciting time in the ministry. It, It seemed like things were kind of happening this fall in the ministry in ways that I hadn't seen previously. You could say the ministry felt to me like a success. And you ever had moments in your life like that that you just felt like things were clicking? You felt like a success. 
And a pastor reminded me recently that, think about Judas for a moment, and how when Judas betrayed Jesus, the other apostles didn't look at Judas and go, oh, I knew it. I knew that guy was a traitor because when we went out to heal the demons or cast the demons out, his demon didn't come out. I knew he was a traitor. Or when we went out to heal um, the sick and the blind and the lame, the guy that Judas tried to heal, he didn't get healed. I knew there was something about that Judas guy. That's not what happened, right? Judas, at least outwardly, was a successful apostle, at least for a time. There was a amount of success that he could um, boast about that that meant that his success was not an indicator of whether or not he really possessed God's grace at all. That's, that's the first point, really, is that success in your life is not an indicator that this grace of God is for you. Or, or Sorry, not that it's for you, but that, but that you possess it, you have it. Success is not an indicator of it. And you see that in Ruth's life. Just a few verses before the ones in your bulletin here, to kind of sum up where the book of Ruth begins, a woman named Naomi leaves Israel because of a famine with her husband and travels to a foreign place called Moab. And in Moab, um, she also brings her two sons with her, I should have said. Her husband, once they get to Moab, immediately dies. And then her two children, her two sons, marry um, these two women, Orpha and Ruth, But then about ten years later, her two sons die. And so Naomi is left without a husband, without these two sons that she loved. And Ruth herself is left without her husband. Outwardly, there was no success going on in her life at all. Um, I mean, to to put it mildly. She was in the midst of um, great pain and loss and things felt like they just were not working out for Ruth at all. And yet, yet God's grace was, was working in, in her life, and she was going to one day be a part of the story of the redemption of the whole world. Right? She's related to Jesus. But in this moment, in, in the sadness that she's entered into, she can't really tell that. Um, success is not an indicator of whether or not you possess God's grace. Because Ruth had it. She was a part of the story of God's grace going to the whole world to renew heaven and earth. Jesus would be born from her lineage. And yet outwardly, you you couldn't tell it. It looked like things had failed completely for her. Her husband was dead. Her mother-in-law's husband was dead. And... I think that should serve as a, as a warning, especially to religious people. I mean, we are religious people, right? And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, we have all the privileges and the blessings of growing up around God's people, which is the same sort of people that Matthew and the apostles would have been preaching to. To say, look, just because things look nice on the outside, it's not an indicator of whether or not you really possess and have grace on the inside. And so be careful. Um, when, when there's lots of money in the bank account and your kids are in the schools that you want them to be in and things kind of look okay. I know that's not everyone here, but for some of us it is. Things look okay. The scripture is saying be careful. Success is not an indicator that we possess God's grace.
Success, now foreigners. So we just, in RUF, um, we just finished our December training. Uh, so this year we went to Denver, Colorado. And um, this is my second or third December training. So I still feel like the new guy. And when I walk into this, this hotel lobby full of gifted and smart and like crazy well-dressed REF campus semesters, like I don't fit in at all, crazy well-dressed. I just feel like I don't belong there. They're all smarter than me. They, they all know more about theology. They've all read more books than I have. I, I don't feel like I belong there. You ever felt like that? Um, maybe for you, coming to church feels like that. You kind of walk into church and you see everyone and you feel like, I know I made it here, but this just this isn't my place. These aren't my people. Um, and you might be a Christian and still feel like that. Or, or perhaps you're here tonight and, and you're not a Christian and this place really feels like a foreign place to you. I don't know how I got here. I do not belong here. I think I'm ready to leave. Well, this is exactly how Ruth... Um, must have felt. And you see this especially in verse 6. It says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. And the author reminds us of this. If I could show you the rest of the book, you know, repetition for the sake of emphasis. And the author of Ruth says over and over again that Ruth is from Moab. She's not an Israelite. She's from Moab. Did I mention she's not from here? She's not an Israelite. She doesn't really belong here. She's from over there. And that's exactly how Ruth must have felt. If you look again down in verse 22. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite. The author didn't have to throw that in, but he just wants to tell us one more time. Ruth is a foreigner. She's a foreigner to God's grace. In the Old Testament, the gospel had not gone out to the whole world the way that it had now. And God's people were limited to just the Jews, just the Israelites. And so Ruth, in a really, in a really real, that's terrible English, in a real sense, was a foreigner to God's grace. And yet, God's word of grace was for her, a foreigner. If you look in verse 6, Then she arose, this is Naomi, with her daughters-in-law, to return from the country of Moab. For she, Naomi, had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord has, had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to her mother's house. And so there's this back and forth between Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. And Naomi says, Look, just stay here. You've got your gods. She even mentions your gods um, in, in, in another part of the book. I've got my God in Israel. You have your gods in Moab. Um, I love you. What you need to do is stay in your, in your home country. I'm going to go home to Israel. You stay here and find a husband. But Ruth doesn't buy that. Something in Ruth had been working. Her heart had been warmed, not just to Naomi, but to the God that Naomi worshipped. I wish it was in the text before you, but in another place in Ruth, maybe it is in the text. No, it's not. Go back and read the book of Ruth. It's, fourth, it's four chapters, 15 minutes. Um, 
Ruth makes sure to say, your God will be my God. This God of Israel, Yahweh, who had revealed himself to Moses, your God will be my God. Ruth knew that even though she was a foreigner, God's grace was for her. Even though she felt like the kind of person that does not belong there. I do not belong in Israel. It's not me. These are not my people. Ruth knew that God's grace was for her. And this is seen most vividly in um, the one Jesus Christ, who, though his home was in heaven, you know, with the Father and the Son and the Spirit, he left heaven, he left the comfort of heaven to go into a foreign land, our world, because his grace was for us foreigners. And so tonight I want you to know that you you may be a Christian here tonight, but you just feel like you do not belong here. God's word of grace is for you is that if you feel like you don't belong, well, his grace is for people like you. It was for Ruth, a foreigner, someone who didn't belong. And the loving arms of God um, enfolded Ruth into his people and brought her in and loved her and cared for her and made her one of God's children. Foreigners. Next, bitterness. I mentioned going to Denver, Colorado just a couple of weeks ago. I had been planning for months a little camping trip to begin um, the training that I had. I know some of you think this is nuts, but um, I had planned a little camping trip, just two nights that would uh, begin the training. This had nothing to do with the training, just something that I wanted to do. And so I'm looking forward to it. You know, I'm planning and all this stuff. It finally gets there, and things go so badly the first night that I wind up having to get a hotel the second night. And, like, my parents, my parents pay for it, which you know, I'm 35 years old. Like, my parents paying for something just feels weird, too. It felt like a disaster. And especially when I was kind of hiking back to the car, knowing that I was going to have to spend the night in this hotel, when I'd been looking forward to this trip for months, I felt bitter, y'all. Like, my heart felt bitter. You ever felt like that? Um, something happened in your life where you were in, in the midst of a deep, profound bitterness. Of course, we experience this all the time. Things much more um, solemn and much deeper than um, a silly like camping trip that didn't go wrong. And, of course, it's something much more serious here that Naomi is... is, is um, has become so bitter about, it says in verse 19. So the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me my Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Naomi was gripped by sadness and loss and devastation that I have never known. She had lost her husband. She had lost her two sons that she loved. What would she do? She had come back to Israel, but she was destitute because... The land that her family had owned, she had no way to work it. She had no way to make money off of it. She had no way to get food, even though her family had owned this land. And she was in the midst of deep and profound 
bitterness. It was a bitterness that, that was, no, um, was no stranger to uh, our, our Savior, that's what I'm trying to say, was no stranger to bitterness either. Um, you can remember that he humbled himself. It's the same idea there, Naomi being in the midst of this bitterness, Jesus Christ humbling himself to the point of death on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The bitterness that Jesus experienced on the cross. An even greater bitterness than Naomi experienced here. And on the one, so two things here. Um, on the one hand, what Naomi's doing would not pass the test of um, the kind of, you know, the Reform Committee of Approved Emotions. You know, the CARE Committee, the Committee on Approved Reformed Emotions. You know about this. Bitterness is not one of them, right? There's many contexts in Christ's church. You are not allowed to be bitter. You can be joyful. Um, you can be excited about the Lord and about missions. You can be um, maybe ready to kind of confess your sin in kind of a glib way to show, I don't know, how, um, how easy it is for you to do that. You can't be bitter. And I think what God is telling us in this passage on the one hand is that you need a place in your life where where you can go be bitter. You need a friend. You need a community group. You need need somewhere to say, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. I came in full. And I feel empty now. And Naomi believed in a God that she could tell that to. Right? We need that. On the other hand, there is a kind of evil bitterness that can creep into our hearts. Where there's no faith, there's no lifting our eyes to God. It's a kind of bitterness that Satan and our flesh wants to spread kind of like a virus through the church. It's a bitterness that, this is kind of what it says to God. I refuse to be happy. Until you give me what I want. I refuse to be happy until you give me what I want. That's the kind of evil bitterness. That's a temptation that all of us can enter into. And that no doubt Naomi was tempted to enter into, right? She was a human being after all. But remember our Savior. The Lord Jesus who knew bitterness more than anybody. Nobody knew it better than him. And it's the incarnation, after all, that really ought to give us a hope that can face anything, even the kind of bitterness that Naomi entered into. This is what one pastor says. He says, most religious systems teach an afterlife, but ordinarily it's conditioned on your living a morally good and observant life. Christianity, as we have seen, on the contrary, offers this afterlife as a gift. It is grace. It's for foreigners. It does not belong to good people. But to the people who will admit they are not good enough and that they need a savior. And so Christians do not approach death uncertain whether they will be found worthy of eternal life. They believe in Jesus who alone has the record worthy of eternal life and they're secure in him. God doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us a thing. He doesn't owe me a good family. He doesn't owe me a good life. Um, 
He doesn't owe me a house to live in. He doesn't owe me clothes to wear. I have forfeited all those privileges. And yet, and yet, he has given me everything in his son. And in the spirit that gives me joy and hope as I wait for all things to be made right. I am waiting. I'm waiting for all things to be made right. Finally, power. When I graduated from seminary just a few years ago and then was ordained, I felt within myself this new temptation to kind of feel better than everybody else, to feel more powerful than everyone else. You ever felt like that? Maybe you know more about medicine than everybody else or more about law or more about teaching or music or art or finance. And this is the thing that sort of makes you feel, makes you feel powerful. Um, the amount of money that you have in your bank account. Not bad things. None of these things are bad. But they are the things that make us feel powerful and in control when we're in the right settings. There, there can even be a kind of um, a religious power that you have about feeling like we're in the religious um, majority. Or even a, a racial power, like there's a lot of talk about that right now, right? The power of, uh, of white privilege. The power of being in a race that's the majority. What might the scriptures teach us about that? Look, it says in verse um, 13, chapter 4, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. So Naomi and Ruth return from this foreign land into Bethlehem. And through chapters that I don't have time to read, Ruth finds Boaz, who's um, what the scripture calls in verse 14, a redeemer. Blessed be the Lord who has not left us this day without a redeemer. And this redeemer has the opportunity to basically buy the land that Naomi owns so that he can then begin to work the land and provide money and food for for Naomi and then also marry Ruth so that she can have children. This man Boaz is in a position of great, great power. He has money, he has privilege, he has it all. But it says in verse 13, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And they're talking about Boaz Maybe something else too, but at least Boaz. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, that's Ruth, who loves you, is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. That's the kind of double meaning. Who's the him? I thought we were talking about Boaz here, but... Him as the son, is the son the redeemer or is Boaz the redeemer? Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him his name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, which means servant, by the way. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. See, Boaz was a kinsman redeemer. You grew up in Sunday school, you've heard that before. He was a man who was related to Naomi, who was like Naomi, and because of that, he was able to save Naomi and provide her with a family, with a grandson, and to provide shelter and to be a husband to Ruth. Matthew, the apostle, in his gospel, is trying to tell us something about this Jesus Christ, 
who has been given all authority under heaven, this Jesus Christ who wants us to go make disciples of all nations and to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Matthew's trying to say this Jesus, his pedigree, this thing that Jesus did where he had all this privilege and power and he left it all in heaven and he came down to be like us so that he could die for our sins. God was doing stuff a lot like that long, long time ago when Boaz used his privilege and his power and his wealth. Not for himself. This was another mouth to feed for Boaz. But instead he set that aside and he became the servant of Naomi. He became a refuge for her. He spread his wings over Ruth and gave her a new life. Such that Naomi, despite losing her husband, losing her two sons that she loved, she can say, blessed be the Lord, he has not left me. Um, Sorry, the women are saying this about Naomi. He has not left you without a redeemer. He will be to you a restorer of life. And not all of us, not all of us, but many of us are in positions of great power and privilege. Um, and in at least just a, a, pure, a pure like physical strength, I'm not talking like intellectual strength or anything like that, but especially husbands with wives, like men in general are just strong, and, and I mean physically, not intellectually, nothing like that, but physically, men are usually stronger than, there are exceptions, there are plenty of exceptions, one of you here is like, 10 years in CrossFit, you could kick my butt. But normally, men are just physically stronger than women. Um, like if you're in a marriage where, where the husband seems to be, um, get tired, like later on, like the wife gets tired earlier and the husband gets tired, like he has, he has a little bit more energy, like that's, that's sort of a normal marriage. Why would we as husbands... Um, we who have a Savior who used his strength to serve rather than to be served. Like, that's what the incarnation is all about. Like, Jesus didn't stay up in heaven watching Netflix and just kind of say, you know, you guys, you look like you need help. You're in trouble. Yeah, good luck with that. Neither, neither did Jesus come down from heaven just to kind of yell and, like, to get angry and, like, just fix, fix this. Um, husbands, why would we do either of those, like check out or like go nuts, when our Savior used his power and his privilege? He didn't say it was wrong to be in a position of privilege. It wasn't wrong, but he used his power and his privilege to serve. He used his power and his privilege to love. Why would we, why would we do anything else? Um, well, All this is what we can learn, I think, from the fact that God made Ruth a part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. As Christians were those, we were born as foreigners from salvation. But God came near to us. He became like us to serve us, to die for our sins. And amidst the great bitterness in this life that we all experience, it is universal, the experience of bitterness. We do not weep. We are not bitter without hope. 
Though his love is sometimes obscured by clouds. It is. I think when we see the whole picture, the whole story, what Ruth would tell us, um, what I pray that we'd be able to say is, Blessed be the Lord. He has not left us without a Redeemer. And he has been to me the nourisher and the sustainer of our lives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, becoming like us, to serve us, to live the life we couldn't, to die the death that we couldn't. Uh, We thank you for adopting us into your family. May we go out and live as those who have your name put upon us, uh, the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Help us to represent our family name well um, in the next week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.